Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block of hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Talk about Christian relativism, hmm? For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy, do not ruin, do not kill the one for whom Christ died. So, do not let what you regard as good be spoken as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone who, uh, to, to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Here's why. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The longer I spend in this passage of Scripture, the more convinced I am of its simplicity. We might struggle over our differences on non-black and white issues, but this passage does, does not struggle to give us direction. It's actually very clear, it's very practical, and it's very beautiful. We are the ones, you and me are the ones who tend to muddle it up with our sinful tendencies towards being contentious, selfish, and judgmental. And there are some who will not be satisfied no matter the clarity of the explanation. So here is... Jesus one day, John the Baptist, who's in prison, has sent followers. John's having a, a funk, a time of funk in his life. He's in a prison, he's got some doubts going, and his followers come to Jesus and they say, are, are you the one? Are you the coming one? I thought it was fascinating in Luke 7 where John doesn't, uh, or Jesus doesn't respond by saying, yes, yes, I'm the one. You know what he did instead? Start healing people. 
healed blind people, cast out some demons, and a bunch of other things. And it was in that context that Jesus said, and by the way, the Pharisees and the lawgivers, in spite of everything he did, right in front of them, they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't receive the counsel of God. And so Jesus, at a point of frustration, mind you, says this, to what then will I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine. You say, well, that's because he's got a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, well, look at him. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. No wonder. Poor Jesus. Some days he just couldn't win. And to those who stood against the truth, it did not matter who was preaching it. They'd find a way to vilify them, be it John the Baptist or Jesus. But I didn't completely quote the verse. The verse finishes with these words from Jesus. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. Have you ever read that? At the end of the day, in the debate over modern day, strong and weak. It's really who lives for Jesus Christ whose testimony comes out clearly. That's, that's, the end of the, that, that's what we look at at the end of the day. I'm talking about issues that are not, don't have tons of clarity in Scripture. And, and this, these areas of differences between the so-called strong and the so-called weak We opened up a ton of questions. We brought that up last week. Applications and, well, differences that come out of this passage. Remember, our primary quest is to rightly divide the word of truth and not exhaust the applications. Of course, giving no application is a preacher's cop-out, but it can't be my primary concern. My hope is to do just that, and once we're done, we'll throw some resources at you and some, some application. So, for instance, if I choose, as a friend of mine did not all that long ago, to take off on, let's say, alcohol on this passage and preach against all of the abuses of alcohol and all of the potential harm they can bring to anybody who ever drinks it, and that's why every Christian should be a total teetotaler and nobody should ever touch it. If I do that like a friend of mine did, then I have committed... Not one, but two crimes. One, I would, going, I would be going beyond the scripture on the, on the subject. And two, I would be doing exactly the opposite of what this text is teaching. My friend told me, he goes, I was really surprised of how our people really negatively respond to that message. But I wasn't surprised. The reason they responded that way was not because they were a bunch of lushes, but because he was butchering the passage. It's very meaning and it's intent. Listen, I hope you agree with this. God's people know how to smell a rat and a, and a preacher's pretext. My friend had a personal passion, and he saw in this passage an opportunity to teach on it, but he was wrong to do so. Because that's not what this passage is talking about. Does it apply to these things? Of course it does. But if you're going to go preaching against this or against that, you better find another text than this one. 
Remember last week we gave you that age-old wisdom from Augustine who said, in essentials, that's the black and whites, that's the cardinal doctrine, that's the things we die for. Unity, right? On non-essentials, liberty. That's the passage here, non-essentials. And in all things, what? Charity or love. Now, as we worked through those first 12 verses last week, we, we, we kind of drew out questions, if you'll recall, and they are these. Why not welcome them, the weak, if God has? Why judge them if God hasn't? And why examine them if God will? Because we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Amen? Every one of us will give an account. So the first 12 verses appeal to both the strong and the weak, but these last verses I've just read appeal mostly to those who would deem themselves strong. So I want to make a beeline for the... Uh, and well, really, before I do, I want, to, I want to share a note with you from Warren Wiersbe. You can put it up there. He shared it with a pastor friend of mine. He's a young person. He used to be a member of Sailorville, pastoring a church up north. Uh, he's befriended Warren Wiersbe. And Warren, Warren jotted this little note to him a couple of years ago. It's, it's really profound. The only reason I, I hesitated putting it up is because it's probably the only thing some of you are going to listen to today. That's okay. Here's what he wrote. These are his, this is his handwriting. Zach, he said, there's a difference between convictions, opinions, and prejudices. And then he went on very succinctly to say, with, with convictions, we say, I know, and we're willing to go to jail for it. With opinions, we say, I think, and we're open to other suggestions and points of view. With prejudices, we say, I feel, and we don't really have reasons why. Well put. Very, very well put. So, as we get into this passage of Scripture, we've given you those first three questions. Here's a fourth question I want to lay out for you in verses 13 all the way to the end of the chapter. is why ruin a soul if Christ came to save it? That's his question he's asking here, okay? Why would you ruin a soul if Christ came to save it? He says in verse 13, he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather decide, make a decision here, never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So he's talking about selfless motivation to decide. But is he saying here that we who are strong, whoever we are, should just give up all Christian liberties? I don't think so. What he is saying is he don't put a stumbling block. The Greek phrase literally means something a person trips over. Just, it's a metaphor, but it helps, doesn't it? I, I, was, I remember witnessing fervently to a Mormon one day. We went way into the night at a restaurant. I'm knocking down one cup of coffee after another, and I realized suddenly he's not drinking any coffee. And I found out later on, Joseph Smith, you know, in this cult, wrote this law of wisdom, said, you don't drink coffee. So that wasn't real helpful to my witness. <laughs> if you're inviting a Jewish person over, it's probably good not to put the pork loin out. You know, if, I mean, in this day, we're, you know, we got all kinds of 
eating fetishes that are out there. You know, so, you know don't, eat, uh, don't eat shellfish. You know, they're the, they're the garbage collectors of the sea. And, and uh, well, if that's the case, don't serve, you know, shrimp and, you know, crawdads or whatever else you, you know, you might like personally when you're having somebody over who has a compunction against them, right? Paul says in verse 14, I know, and he uses really strong words, like I know with absolute no, I mean, I know this, I'm totally persuaded. In fact, he says, I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus, which is an interesting line. Where did he get that? In fact, one translation, I'm persuaded by Jesus. What do you mean by that? And some people think that Paul, when he had spent time with Jesus, Jesus basically capsulized his life. And, and uh, have you ever read what Jesus said in, in Mark 7? And I'm asking that because Paul might have known this. This is what he said in Mark 7, 19. Here's what he wrote. Here's what he said, rather. He said, since, and he's talking about food enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. He's talking about things that go in, don't defy you, things that go out, do. But then Mark adds this parenthetical line, this little commentary, thus he declared all foods clean. Have you ever read that? I know that just throws your health thing into a tizzy here. What Paul is saying in this passage is, I, I know this. That nothing is unclean in itself. But not everybody has this knowledge. That's what he's trying to get at here. Uh, and look at verse 14. That's what he says. He says, he says, I know and persuade in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. This is a fascinating line to me. Because he's making a beeline to our consciences is what he's doing. You know, here's a life verse for Christian postmoderns. Relative truth. Douglas Moo writes, what Paul wants the strong to realize is that people differ in their ability to internalize truth. And that's a true statement, isn't it? People, they differ in their abilities to take truth and, you know, assimilate it, so to speak. And even me, I mean, I was saved out of a ritualistic system. I was raised a strong Roman Catholic. And, you know, for years after I became a Christian, I just, anytime somebody would do a public a recitation of the Our Father, I just struggled with that because all it was was a rote prayer to me growing up. And the Apostles' Creed, which we did in every Mass, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I didn't even want to look at it, but I can't find anything really wrong with it. And the use of the word sacrament for what we're about to do today, I mean, we were, you know, you're taught, these aren't sacraments, this is an ordinance. okay. Well, because we were talking, the sacrament is, a, by definition, is how God gives grace, and God doesn't give grace through these elements. I buy that because the Scripture is clear on that. But there's a lot of people in the evangelical world that use the term sacrament as it refers to communion. Get over it. It's what it is. I, ha I, I had a dickens of a time getting over it. My conscience just struggled for a while on that. He says in verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. So, by the way, this proves not only that the relativity of the conscience, but the power of it. Your conscience literally becomes a barometer of whether or not something becomes sin. I know that sounds pretty strange, but you'll... This is what the text is saying. 
it is the only thing on earth that I can think of that's the only thing that Scripture declares to make sin relative. Oh, wait a minute. There's one more thing. Our conduct. Look again at, at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. These are strong words. Here again, sin actually becomes relative to how we conduct our lives in the area of our liberties. So that we do not misunderstand the power or the misuse of our freedom can have on others. Paul writes that we have the potential, watch this, of destroying someone. And he doesn't just use candy-andy words here. It's the word apolemi. It means it's the same word used in noun form of Satan in the book of Revelation. It's ta- it, it, means to, it means to render something utterly ruinous. I don't think he's talking about destroying somebody, unless you're witnessing to an unsaved person, like I, you know, with the Mormon guy. And, but it's, he's talking brother to brother here. And how you can really mess up somebody's life by taking advantage of your so-called liberties. You then make your weak Christian brother a slave of that which he was saved from. Remember, this is why Paul was so angry with these Galatians. Because they were going back to the law. They're going back to legalism. And what Paul is really saying in this passage, what he's really saying in this section here is, is if Jesus gave up his life for you, Could you not give up a liberty for a brother? That's what he's saying. And now verse 16, he says, So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. So lest we jump, you know, to the conclusion that all liberty should be bottled up and stored away, this is what he says. And then he says this in verse 17. Look at this. This is powerful. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, both now and futuristically, is what he's talking about here. By the way, when Jesus himself spoke about the kingdom of God, did he not describe it as eating and drinking? Yeah, he did. Let me show you a couple of verses. Here's one. Here's what he said in uh, Luke's gospel, I think. Here you go. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, obviously talking to his disciples. But notice how he expands this in Matthew's gospel. Look what he says here. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I love this. Are these scenes described by Jesus about food and drink or about the Savior and his people? Here's the point. The kingdom of God, both now and in the future, is about people. 
people made righteous by God, people who have effervescent joy in the Holy Spirit, and relationships. And one more thing, the king is in the kingdom, right? That's the one we're going to be sitting with, right? So he wants, he's bringing us, we're talking about dealing with people. This isn't just about you getting your way. And when he says in verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, so let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I think what he's basically, the summation of this is he's telling us not to get hung up on peripherals, but don't ruin those who are. That's what I think he's saying. So why ruin a soul? If Christ came to save it, be careful. Here's a fifth thing. Why flaunt your liberty if Christ didn't? Because this is really what it gets down to, brass tacks here, right? Let's get down to brass tacks. Why flaunt your liberty if Christ didn't? And he's, you know, toward the end here, he says as much. He says... The faith that you have, verse 22, and the faith that you have, and the you is emphatic, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself by what he approves. If he doubts, he's condemned by what he eats because he's not eating in faith. This is what we talked about last week. The, whatever, you, whatever your liberty consists of, you need to have the same faith that Abraham had to believe God and be accounted righteous. The same exact faith. If you don't have that, you don't do it. Period. End of the discussion. But he says we, we, ought, we have obligations, chapter 15. We have obligations to the weak, those of us who consider ourselves strong, not to please ourselves. And then he tells us that Jesus didn't. So why should we? All things are lawful, but all things are not Profitable, right? So who was Jesus living to please? Well, he told us, I do all things that please him, right, John? I'm always trying to please God. So in my mind, this is the key to the exercise of Christian liberty. Lovingly not flaunting one's liberty. Be it places you go, freedoms you enjoy, assuming there's no biblical prohibition, or certain positions that you take that are neutral in and of themselves. I remember doing a study of the love chapter many years ago and, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, and I, I came across one writer who, who I love what he pointed out. He says, you know, in the world, if you divided the entire world up, one-third of the world eats with knives, forks, and spoons. Another third of the world eats with chopsticks, and the other third of the world eats with their hands. And then he asked the question, which one is right? And then he, his answer was brilliant. He said, the one who eats in love. That, that was a brilliant answer. The one who eats in love. And that circles us back to Paul's intent in this passage of Scripture, which we pointed out last week, which is to extend the tent pegs of our love for one another. 
And that's going to include a passion, a passion to grow and become strong. It's going to include a passion for my brother and my sister who are not strong. It's going to include a a restraint. And it's going to include a constant reminder of why God has us here on this earth. And we've got news for you. The text declares it. It's not to please yourself. So as we move to the communion table this morning, I want to exhort you in four different ways, if I may, from this passage of Scripture. One, let's pursue spiritual growth so that we might be strong. The last I checked, it's not good to be weak. We have responsibilities to the weak, but it's not good to be weak. If you're weak, become strong. This is what Paul said to the Ephesians. And now, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. The reason why you're struggling against the wiles of the devil is because you're a weak person. So get strong. Amos prophesied that there was coming a day when there would be a famine in the land. Not a famine for food or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of God. And I think it's a self-imposed famine for some of us. How's your time in the Word going? Ah, not very good. Read it once last week. What's that all about? Is this not what I need every day? Every day. I can't leave the house without this book. How can you... Be so cavalier about your life and about your, where you're at in your walk with God. We all start weak, but we're not supposed to stay that way. God wants us to be strong. Not proud, but strong nevertheless. I, a friend of mine years ago, do you remember when, when the Christian films, not movies, were popular? And a friend of mine uh, was in, uh, uh, at her church, and, uh, and she said there was a Christian film, and she loved the film. And uh, so she thought this gal would also love the film. There's an elderly lady in the church. Her and her husband have passed on since then, but she was a godly woman steeped in the word of God. And, and uh, afterwards, this friend of mine walked up, and she goes, did you, en- did you enjoy the movie? <laughs> The lady looked at her and goes, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My friend was convicted, obviously. And she was trying to convey, where's the preaching of the word? So let's pursue spiritual growth so that we might be strong. Can we agree with that? Secondly, let's always have a healthy hatred of human standards of righteousness. Wherever they're coming from, we should hate it because human standards of righteousness for the lost will send them to hell. And for those who know Jesus, who go back to a human standard of righteousness, it just enslaves you. This is what the Galatians were so guilty of, and they were so weak as a result. Don't be weak. Let's have a healthy hatred for all human standards of righteousness. My absolute favorite quote of all time by John MacArthur is this one. 
A human standard may be more lenient than Scripture or more restrictive than Scripture, but it can never be better than Scripture. Amen. It can never be better than Scripture. So make sure whatever standards you have, you're putting them against the grid of truth. And if it doesn't hold up to the grid of truth, it might not be something you throw out. You might principalize or whatever, but don't flaunt it. Don't superimpose it on somebody else. And don't make yourself to be spiritual and that person not just because you do it and he doesn't. Here's a third thing. I think you'll like this one. Let brotherly love continue. Or, as we put it up there, let brotherly love continue. That's what the writer of Hebrews said. Let brotherly love continue. This is what this passage is about. Loving one another in spite of our differences. Isn't it? Isn't it? Francis Schaeffer used to say that Christians have put the chasm in the wrong place. There's a chasm between those who are going to heaven and those going to hell. There's a chasm between believers and unbelievers. But God never intended there to be a chasm between believer and believer. Let the love of the brethren continue. And by the way, some of you that are hung up on who the modern-day strong person is and who the modern-day weak person is, oh, yes, here it is. I can't wait. I've waited the whole message for this. Here's my answer. Don't ask who's strong. Don't ask who's weak. Ask who's motivated by love. Because that's what the scripture's saying. Did you look at it? Did you see it? We ran over the top of it, and that's shame on me. But look at verse 14. I know and persuade the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean to anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. That's the only thing you need to know. That's the only thing I need to know. Is my liberty loving to my brother, to my sister? So ask them, ask yourself, am I motivated by love? Uh, who is pursuing peace and building one another up? That's what he's saying. Twice he says this in this passage, does he not? And that really leads us to the fourth thing I want to share as we go to the Lord's table. Let's seek to build each other up rather than break one another down. He says it twice, not once, twice in this passage of Scripture. Verse 14, verse 19, look at it again. 14, 19, we, didn't, we again ran over the top of this. So let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding, chapter 15. And verse 2, let us, each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. The late James Montgomery Boyce wrote this. Let's allow God to deal with each of his servants how when and as kindly as he will. And while we're at it, let's be thankful he has dealt as kindly as he has with us. Have you experienced the kindness of God that brings salvation? 
Here's the truth that every one of us, weak, strong, lost, or found, need to hear. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he was buried, and he rose again from the dead, according to the scriptures. And you must believe in him if you would like to have everlasting life. To have your sins forgiven and be free. And as Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, <laughs> you are free indeed. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time we can spend in your word and come to this communion table and be reminded of our great Savior and his great love for us and the fact that he did not live to please himself. Indeed, Lord, he forsook all kinds of liberties. Liberties, Lord, which he now enjoys once again. We're glad for that. But how glad we are that he laid aside even his very own glory so that he might move into our neighborhood and speak into our lives and show us the way, the truth, and the life, being he himself, and then being completely righteous, unscathed by sin, he took our sin upon himself and died. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for rising from the dead. And thank you for this time that we can partake of these elements, those of us who know you, and remember your perfect life, your liberty laying aside sacrificial death. Help us, Lord, all of us who know you, to be strong, grow to that end. Hate any standard of righteousness that is an affront to your truth. Love one another passionately. And live to build one another up rather than tear one another down. And thus send the world this, this amazing sign, this marquee that we are your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.